0: All right, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez once again. I want to welcome you all, those of you that are already part of the church, those of you that are worshiping with us online. Um, I think this is a, a great season uh, for the church for many reasons. But one of the reasons is because we are getting to, uh, or I'm getting to introduce, a modified or revise mission statement. Now, if you were here last week, I, I made the statement that the two most important questions you can ask is who am I and why do I exist? What's my identity and what's the reason for my existence, my purpose, right? Um, and I and I said that uh, as Christians, we shouldn't struggle so much with with uh, our identity, even though we still struggle, uh, because when you look at the scriptures, you like you supposed to know already. I supposed to know who. Or, Who am I already? Like, I know who I am in a sense, right? And part of the reason is because of who I am in Jesus Christ. So, for example, as Christians, as a church of Jesus Christ, we are followers of Jesus. We are Christians, meaning little Jesus. We already have an identity. As As a church, as believers, we are already children of God Almighty because we have been adopted in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have, we already redeemed people because Jesus died for our sins and he raised uh, to justify us and make us uh, free and accepted and forgiven, right? By, in Jesus, as Christians, we are already loved by God. We don't need to purchase that love, earn that love, fight for that love. We already have that love. And, and in addition to that, we know who we are because we have been sealed by the Spirit. You know, the spirit of God lives in us. The third person of the Trinity lives in us and guarantees not only that we are Christians and guarantees not only that we have been adopted, but it guarantees our future. So even though we all struggle with identity, we already have an identity. But the struggle sometimes is not just with the identity, but with the purpose And I think that sometimes we struggle with our purpose because we forget that our our identity cannot be taken away from us. That our identity is not based on what we do or don't do. That our identity is not based on what we feel. Our identity is secure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if that is true, That identity is functional, meaning that identity transforms the way we think, transforms the way we live, and transforms the way we see this world. Our identity in Jesus Christ is functional. And therefore, if you have an identity, at the same time, you have a purpose. And I think that the best way the Bible summarizes what the purpose of the church is, the Christians are, is that we are people that exist to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission in that order. That if you and I are believers, if you already place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are called to be people of the great commandment and the great commission. Now, just in case you never heard that before, which I'm assuming that many of you guys did, we're going to read these two passages together. Matthew 22:37 to 39 says this and we read together. Love the Lord your God. Let me do it again. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's read together Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is why we exist. To be people of the great commandment and the great commission. Last week, then, I talked about the first two loves, Love God and love one another. And I made the case that Jesus, when he uses the term uh, love your neighbor, as we saw in the text, he uses that in two different ways. Now, because I already explained that last week and you missed it, you can listen to the sermon online. But today I'm going to focus on the next two loves. Love your neighbor and love the nations. This is how we um, explain what the Great Commission and the Great Commandment is for us. This is how we express in our local congregation what the great commandment and the great commission looks like, once again, for us. Today, then, I want to talk about these two loves. But before I explain why I use those terms, it's important that we keep in mind that the order matters and that the most natural reaction The most natural behavior for someone that has tasted the love of God and the God of love, the most natural reaction it will be to love him back, to love the same people that are worshiping the same God, but the Bible never stops there. The Bible says because you have tasted this love, Love God in response, love one another as a family of faith, but you must learn to love people outside the walls of the church or outside the family of faith. With that then, we have to talk about loving our neighbor. Now we are using this image, so the square in the middle represents us as believers and the circle, the the circumference there represents our context or our area of influence. And part of the reason is because we wanted to create a visual in which you could see that every single one of us has been placed in a a context, in a place, and God has placed people in our context and in our place. And that if we have loved God, and that if he has loved us, and we are loving God, and we are loving one another, by default, because of the spirit living in you, You're going to want to love people that is not like you. You know, I'm going to give you a couple of verses here. But before that, I want to make the argument that what I'm calling us to do is kind of how the, the Trinity works. See, I learned this from Jonathan Edwards, but he would make the argument that the only reason, or one of the reasons why uh, Jesus came to save us and die for our sins, was because within the Godhead, the Trinity, God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit, within the Godhead, there was so much love, so much, so much love that out of the overflow of that love, you became a Christian. And I became a Christian. So, to a certain degree, when I'm, when I'm talking about this, I have the Trinity in mind. If we have really tasted the love of God, if we are loving God more, if we are loving one another more, it'll be natural out of the overflow of that love to extend that love to other people that is not like us, which is the second way Jesus uses the word neighbor, someone that is not like you. Now, I know that there's gotta be at least a person or two that are hearing the phrase, love your neighbor, and you ask the question, who is my neighbor? Now, what is interesting, though, is that you're not the first person to ask that question. In the Bible, we find someone that asks exactly the same question. And I wonder if part of the reason why we ask who is my neighbor is because we have categories of who our neighbors are. So in Luke chapter 10, we have Jesus having this conversation with this expert of the law. Someone that is a a leader, a spiritual leader. Someone that knows the Bible, memorizes the Bible, teaches the Bible, comes to church, gives money, serves, does all this stuff. And he is asking Jesus a very uh, legalistic question. He says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Which is super interesting because if you're a believer at least a believer in this church, you know that that's that's not really a good question. Because there's nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. We believe and we repent. That's it. And yet, Jesus wants to show him something about his heart. And he says, to respond, he quotes the great commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. It is within that then, That this man assumes that he already loves God, but he's got questions about what he means to love your neighbor. So look at what it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. That's an interesting thing. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I want to invite you to consider that. I think that part of the reason why he's asking that question is because, precisely, he's got categories in his head in whose his neighbor is worthy of his love. So maybe he's saying, what? So is my neighbor uh, the people that is part of my religious circle? I already do that. Is my neighbor the, pe- uh, the people that are like me? I already do that. Is my, my neighbor people of my social class? And he'll be like, I already do that. Is my neighbor the people that I have fun with? And he would say, Well, I already do that. Is my neighbor someone that looks like me? And he would say, Well, I already do that. But Jesus knows his heart. The same way he knows your heart and he knows my heart. He's trying to justify the kind of people that he ought to love and not to love. So it is within this context, then, that Jesus brings the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm telling you, church, that was a smack in the face. Because if he's got categories, Jesus is about to destroy that category. And then he tells the story about this man that was attacked by thieves, and they took everything from him, and they beat him up, and they left him to die. And look at what it says. Luke chapter 10, verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, look at what it says after in verse 32. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, I don't want you to miss this, because you got to remember, Jesus is talking to a religious leader. It's someone that thinks I have it all together, someone that assumes that loves God and someone that assumes they already loves your neighbor. And he uses two religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, so he could make a connection between those religious leaders and himself. And what he says is that these two religious leaders that quote-unquote love the Lord and love the neighbor, whenever they see someone that is in need, instead of doing something for that person, the very person that the Lord placed in their context, they move out of the way because, stinky, go this way. Now, by this, this man knows that Jesus is talking about him. He's already showing him that he's got issues in his heart when it comes to defining who the neighbor is. But to make it even worse, he chooses a person that this very religious leader rejects because he's a second-class citizen, a Samaritan. So look at what it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He uses this man as an illustration. A man that this religious leader sees as a second class, someone that is not worthy, someone unpure, someone that doesn't have the same pedigree, someone that is not welcome in his society, and he says, Look at what this man did. He exercised compassion to the one that was broken. He helped them. But look at, and then he goes very practical. Look at how he helped them. And what I want to show you is that this man exercised pity not just by looking at the person that was bleeding to death, but by just arriving to the person and saying, you know what, I'm going to pray for you. And then goes away. Amen. No, 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 no. He, he was probably praying for him. But he says that compassion requires more than just good intentions. In verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds. Pouring uh, pour uh, uh, oil and wine, which is, uh, which is kind of medicine. Then he put the man and his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So look at all the practical things that he is doing. And then in verse 35, he says that he used his money. And he took him to this plate and says, even if you spend more, let me know. I will take care of that. And don't forget that Jesus is using as an example Of what it means to love your neighbor as a Samaritan. Someone that was unwanted. But that that understood more what it means to love your neighbor than a religious leader. See, as a church, that's our call. We are called to love God. We are called to love one another. But that doesn't mean that we are not called to love our neighbors. The people that the Lord has already placed in our, in our roads. The people in our surroundings. The people that, that the Lord gives us in our circle of influence. And we help people not just by prayer and not just with evangelism. But with prayer, we help them in words and deeds. We heal them with words and deeds. We provide for them with words and deeds. And Jesus looked at this religious leader. And Jesus looks at us and says in verse 37, go and do likewise. Can you see why this, is, this must be part of our new mission statement? Yes, we ought to love God with everything we have. Yes, we got to learn how to love one another. But yes, we got to continue to love our neighbors and be intentional about that. You might remember this verse that I brought last week, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, just here. It says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. You know what the word all means in the original? Let's try that again. Man, you guys are Greek experts. Especially those who belong to the family of believers. It's amazing how the Lord puts an order of love and yet He doesn't take from us our responsibility in the same passage. One verse. You guys gotta love each other well. Learn how to do that first. But don't think that you don't have a responsibility to all people. The people that the Lord has placed in your life. You guys remember Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount? This is when Jesus calls us the light, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And then he calls us to let our light shine before others and let our good deeds be in public so people will glorify our Father. That's the best explanation for me what it means to be the church. Salt. Tasty people not because you didn't take a shower but t- <laughs> but taste because you bring flavor preserves life as salt does penetrates society as salt does and as light we bring comfort and we take over and we change things and we bring good deeds Did you know that the word good there in the text is the same word that is used for beautiful? It says that the community of faith is a community of faith that lives in such a way that we bring beauty to wherever we are. Notice that Jesus says that the church is not hiding from the world. It's not divorcing from the world. It's not afraid of the world. Jesus, is the church. The world has nothing on the church. And yet we go into the world salt and light, loving our neighbors. Because when we do that, people will see our good deeds and say, God is awesome. See, so you got to keep that in mind. Because part of our frustration as Christians, when we try to do the good deeds, is that if people don't say, wow, you are awesome. We take it personal. The church is not about us. The kingdom is not about us. It's so he could take the glory. It's so people could see and say, he is awesome. You know, if, if you follow the, the story of redemption, you will see in the Bible, you will see that God always had the same intention and the same plan. If you start right from the beginning, you will see that God would always bless people and then send them out to be blessing. Every time. The blessings of the Lord were never just for you. Were for you to spread that love and that blessing somewhere else. There's a difference, though, between the Old Testament, the Gospels and the Book of Acts, and the Epistles. God is working in a different way all throughout see in the old testament for example god created this community that i'm going to call a centripetal community meaning that they were supposed to live in such a way that the communities in their surroundings would look at them and say wow they have a powerful god when you go to the book of uh to the gospels and the book of acts you see god creating a different community A community that I will call a centrifugal community. A community that will go out. But when you get to the epistles, you see what the church ought to be. A community that is both centripetal and centrifugal. A community that will gather week after week and live our lives and people will be like, I want to be there. But at the same time in a community that after they finish here, they go out there to be light and salt. At the same time. You don't get to choose which one you want to be. You embrace them both. Because we love God with everything we are. We learn to love one another with everything we are. And at the same time, we never compromise by loving, by not loving our neighbors. See, one of the the interesting things about the culture in which we live is that people seem to believe, the culture seems to believe that if we are faithful to our convictions, and we are faithful to the Bible, we don't know how to love people that is not like us. Actually, their invitation to the church is, stop having all these convictions. Live in the gray area, and you will love people well. I want to make the argument... That not only that's unbiblical, but that has not been the case in the history of the church. The most loving people in the history of the church has been the people that have never compromised their Christianity for nothing. You know, if you want to read about that, there's a couple of books that I recommend. One is The Rise of Christianity and the other one is Dominion. Read those two books. They're like, this one is this big. And the other one is this big. So go for a little one. But you will see that real Christianity, genuine Christianity, never compromised beliefs for the sake of love. And that we actually learn to love well when we don't compromise beliefs. I want to give you 10 things from church history that proves my point. Listen, when I hear modern-day Christians saying, well, this is the worst time in the world. Man, you got to (laughs) read. Look at the stuff that happens in the first church, first century. You want me to show you 10 things that they did? And I want you to compare what they went through to the stuff that we go through today. Number one, 10. Number one. They did not embrace the entertainment of the time. They refused to participate in the gladiatorial fests because they knew that killing people for the sake of killing people, for fun, was unbiblical. You know what they call them? Anti-socials. Number two, they refused to support Caesar and to participate in selfish wars of conquests. Killing people for the sake of killing people. Power. Number three. They were against abortion and infanticide. In that culture and in that time when you had a baby and you didn't like the baby. Especially if it was a girl. You had the right to throw that baby out and let it die. You know what Christians did? Because babies are created in the image of God. They will pick these babies up. Number four. They empower women in a culture and in a time in which women were used. And they were also seen as a second uh, category citizens. The church came up and they empowered women to be even in positions of leadership in the church. Number five. They were, they were against uh, sex outside of marriage. Boo! Because they said that marriage sex was for one man and one woman within the context of marriage. Number six, they were against same-sex practice. Because they believed that sex was created for one man and one woman within the context of marriage. People called them Weird. Number seven, they were 100% committed to the poor, the sick and the vulnerable. When people will get sick, everyone will run away from them except one group, a group that will run toward the sick. And those were the first century Christians. Number eight, they proclaimed that there was only one way to the Father in the midst of a pluralistic, polytheistic culture, they said there's only one God, one way to the Father, Jesus Christ. Number nine, they were willing to die for their faith. They were too radical, too narrow-minded. Number 10, they lived as a family. You know, one of the dumb things that they were accused of in the first century is that because they heard that the community of faith talked to one another as brothers and sisters. And when a brother and sister would get married, they would say, there you go, incest. Now, you tell me if we are living in the worst times in the history of the world. You tell me if whatever we're going through is new and yet they remained faithful and the church grew by thousands and thousands and thousands you know why because they have never been seen a group of people that were so committed to their god so committed to one another and so committed to their neighbors i'm going to give you an extra one extra credit for you 11 their community of faith was mixed was a mix of races social classes and everything else and this leads me to my fourth love loving our neighbor our the nations this is the great commission look at what it says here in in matthew 28 verse 19 therefore go and make disciples of all the nations the word there is ethnos every kind of ethnicity baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. No compromise there. Teach them what you believe, but reach all kinds of people. Now, if you, don't, if you think that that's just one verse, I want to show you that this is the entire New Testament. But I'm just going to use one passage as a case study. And when you go home, I invite you to read that passage to see if what I'm saying is true or not. Because one of the things that you're going to see here as part of our fourth love is that we are called to welcome all kinds of people and to reach all kinds of people. So, for example, in Acts chapter 16, we have Paul. And he is ministering to a a group of women, which in itself proves my point that that these guys did not walk away from women. And among that group, there was one woman. Her name was Lydia. And the text says that God opened her heart To respond to Paul's message that in God's sovereignty He opened her heart so she could respond to the gospel. She believes the text says that her and her entire family believes and gets baptized. Now, this is what is interesting. That lady is a Gentile, and she is Asian, and she is a successful businesswoman, and she is wealthy. Keep that in mind. You keep on reading, and now you find Paul having a conversation with a slave girl. Someone that had the spirit, a spirit that predicted the future. And apparently, she had been taken, she had been bought, or whatever, and she's being used for the profit of her masters. Now, this is another woman, but she's not like Lydia. This is a completely different woman, and she is not Asian. She is Greek. She is economically, spiritually, emotionally, and socially oppressed. She is poor, demon possessed, abused, and rejected by society, and God meets her through Paul. Keep that in mind. You keep on reading, that's what you gotta read. And you find Paul in prison interacting with the jailer which we know from history that a jailer was someone most likely that was an ex-military Roman soldier so when someone was retiring instead of going to Florida they would have this job (laughs) listen up so he's not a lady he's not wealthy and he's not poor most likely middle-class but he's not Greek, and he's not Asian. He's Roman, and because of what we know how the soldiers worked in the New Testament about being Romans, we know that he was brutal, we know that he was violent, and we know that he was uneducated. All in one chapter. And you know why that's there? So we know that the church at the end of the day is for everyone. And that the gospel is for everyone. That the gospel touches and welcomes all ethnicities. Males and females, rich and poor, brutal and gentle, and educated and educated, sophisticated and sophisticated, respected and disrespected, that have been united by one message, redeemed by one father, purchased by one brother, sealed by one spirit. The church is not supposed to be monoethnic. The church is not just for a certain class, certain group, it's for all. Isn't that the picture that we see later on in heaven in Revelation 5? See, Acts 16, it's a shadow of what we're going to see in heaven later on. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. And they sang a new song. This is the church of Jesus Christ, saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you, Jesus, were slain and with your blood you purchased for God." Persons, plural, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on earth. When I was thinking about the four loves, I was inspired by this passage. See, the church is a group of people that love God because he loved us first. We were purchased by his blood. See, we love one another because the Lord has put us together to worship together. We are a kingdom family. See, we love our neighbors because he made of us priests. People that represent him. People that represent the God of love and the love of God. And we love the nations because heaven is nations. Every tribe and language and people and nations. Can you see why we are called to these four loves? This is why we exist. This is why this is not a social club. This is the reason why we exist. Now, before I finish, I got to give you one more thing. And the reason why I chose love as a unifying theme. See, last week I told you that I chose the word love because if the God we worship is a God of love, it makes sense that we become who we worship. If our God is a God of love and we worship him, then we become people of love. But I want to give you another argument, which I think is even a stronger argument. Because the the love that God talks about and the love that we see in the New Testament it's a love that is not a commi- is not a, a contract, but a commitment, a covenant. See, I believe that the Lord calls us to love, not whenever we feel like it and not whenever our emotion says that we're supposed to love, that we are committed to love. What I want for us as a church is that we are committed to love God regardless of what happens. As a church, I want us to love one another regardless of what happens. As a church, I want us to love our neighbors regardless of what happens. And as a church, I want us to love the nations regardless of what happens. And if you want to see what that looks like, all you have to do is listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That is a famous passage for weddings. But that passage doesn't have anything to do with weddings. You can apply it there, but that's not what the passage is for. Did you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is for the church? Just listen to it. The church is to love because love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love, Love never fails. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be the church. Question, who can leave that out? Can you leave it out? I can't leave it out. And yet, we ought to continue to grow into becoming what the Lord calls us to be. How do we do it then? Remember how I told you that the word love is a covenant? And remember how I told you that we know what love is? Because God is love. You know how we we become the persons or the people that the Lord calls us to be? When we learn to see 1 Corinthians chapter 13, not just as a description of who we ought to be. But as a description of who God is. And why he sent Jesus to die for us. See, behind the cross, behind Jesus coming a human being, besides him becoming a, an adult, before, besides he going, uh, behind him going to the cross and dying and taking our punishment and all that stuff, you find the heart of God. And this I want you to see. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. If God is love, then God is patient, God is kind. God does not envy, God does not boast, God is not proud, God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking, God is not easily angered, God keeps no record of wrong, God does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, God always trusts, God always hopes, God always preserves, God or God's love never fails. This is why you became a Christian. This is the reason why Jesus goes to the cross. And the more we believe that, the more we're going to learn to love God. We're going to learn to love one another. We're going to learn to love our neighbors. And for sure, we're going to learn to welcome and go for anybody that is not like us, the nations. Amen? Amen? May the Lord grant us to become the people that we're supposed to be. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful, Lord, for the great commandment and the great commission. We are grateful, Lord, because we recognize that the only person that has actually lived that out is Jesus Christ. And yet we recognize that even though he lived it out, he went to the cross. To die in a place that have not lived that. To die in a place for the people that have not lived that. I pray, Lord, that you make of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 something that gives us a clear picture and why is it that you are love? That we see that it's precisely that love that sent Jesus to the cross. And that love that you showed in Jesus in the past it's the same love that we have in the present and it's the same love that is going to carry us into the future I pray Lord that that love is so so magnified in our minds and hearts that it affects our wills and we learn to live the four loves can you please make it happen no one has loved us the way you have no one loves us the way you do. And no one will love us the way you will. Please help us embrace and know that love. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the churches.